All right, welcome back to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. I'm very excited for you guys to hear today's conversation that we had with Dr. Jamie Burr from the University of Guelph. Johnny and I chat with him about a lot of the work that they have been doing over the years, and their their work is really broad-ranging from those that are ill and deal with various types of metabolic disease processes and, and how do we use exercise interventions to combat those things and how do they influence uh, the safety for the prescription of things like blood flow restricted exercise all the way out to the real elite athlete and how might we use BFR or ischemic preconditioning to enhance performance for those individuals. So I hope you will give this one a listen. Make sure to really pay attention because at one point in this podcast, Dr. Burr he actually tells me that I had a very neat idea, and um, and so I, I I'm just I'm still kind of riding high from from that compliment for for what it's worth. Um, also, check the show notes. I've put a bunch of the papers that we discussed in in those show notes, as well as a, a YouTube video that Dr. Bird did, where he describes a lot of the work that they have done within that lab. If you're interested in learning more from us at Owens Recovery Science, be sure to shoot over to our website, owensrecoveryscience.com, and check out the certification courses that we have planned all around the world at this point. We've got a lot of stuff going on in the U.S., but got some courses starting over in the U.K., and check it out. Down under, baby, we're coming to Australia, so make sure you check that out if you're in Australia and you'd like to, to learn a little bit more about how we approach this thing called BFR exercise and how we really feel like it might be used to help our, our patients get better a little bit faster and improve their quality of life and that sort of thing. So look forward to meeting you at these courses. And for now, let's kick it over to Jimmy McKay so we can get going with this podcast. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, Kyle, I'm skipping the intro today, man. We we always just do this dumb, welcome to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, and people probably know, they're, they're the two the two people listening know that it's Owens Recovery Science Podcast, so I, I, I want to get right fair. to our guest. And also, I, I, I don't want you to go into one of your boring-ass stories again, and we lose the other I'm gonna, person, so. I'm working oh, in. Nope, nope, nope. we're, we're going in. right into it, so anyways, <laughs> one way or the other. <laughs> we're, we're super excited. Because we got our friend Jamie Burr on, who, if anyone follows the blood flow restriction space or the ischemic preconditioning space, um, you know, he's like one of the experts out there. We talk about him a lot on, on this podcast in, in a good way. Um, and, and so he's, he's a colleague and a friend. And so Jamie is, man, I, I, I'm from West Texas, Jamie, so I'm not never sure if I say this right. It's from the University of Guelph, right? Like Elf, like Shelf. It is like, it's Guelph, actually. Oh, Jesus. I can't even do that. English is my second language. My first language is bad West Texas English. So, um, okay. You know, Guelph up in, up in uh, the Great White North in, in Ontario, Canada. And so he runs the human performance lab up there. Um, you know, they do all sorts of stuff from looking at performance to, um, you know, elderly. And, and it kind of runs a gamut. It's not a, a one-trick pony lab. And so I, I just pulled out one of my favorite kind of lines that I've seen in the description of, of the lab. And it's our lab specifically focuses on novel perturbations to normal physiology, including factors such as blood flow uh, manipulation, applications of training and monitoring techniques and supplements. So basically taking things and, and, and manipulating it, um, seeing if you get this kind of hormetic response or, or something else. So thanks for being on, man. Um, we had a little bit of a, an issue because Steven Patterson has stole our Zoom this morning. Um, cause he's yeah. too cheap to buy a pro account. And so he's using it over there. And, uh, <laughs> we say nice things about Jamie, but not about Steven. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on guys. It's a, I'm glad we got it to work out and it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. And so you want to tell us just a little bit about your, your background and, and your lab and, and, you know, we, we focus on a lot of IPC and BFR obviously on this and kind of how you got into that space. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think my lab brings a, a bit of a unique perspective to the area. Um, while we do a, a lot of work in blood flow manipulation, uh, meaning ischemic preconditioning and blood flow restriction training, um, 
we come from a perspective of integrative physiology, I would say. So if you were to look at the publications coming out of our lab, they're certainly not all focused on that area. Um, and I think that allows us to sometimes take a step back and look at things um, from a different perspective. I'm actually trained as a cardiovascular physiologist, which is sort of how I landed here. Um, I'd say a lot of other people probably come at it from more of a muscular point of view. So, right. yeah, I mean, um, we are up here in Canada and I think that's probably worth mentioning as well, just because um, that probably affects our approach as well. So in the human performance and health research lab, um, we, we are constrained by probably different things than American labs, I would say, or, or maybe our European counterparts. Um, we're very interested in sports performance and that was part of my job when I was hired to come to Guelph. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's how it's pronounced. Um, but uh, it, it's unique in that in Canada, we don't have a lot of agencies that will fund sport performance specifically. So you will often see that we have a, a health twist to what we do, or we're looking at it really from a mechanistic science point of view. Yeah. So the curling society doesn't fund a lot of research for yeah, sports. You have we, we are sponsored by curling in Maple Syrup, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> John, all well, Johnny wants to know, Jamie, let's be, let's be completely transparent here. The main curiosity that he has is, are there performance enhancing benefits to coupling poutine intake with BFR? That's really what he wants to know. Like, well, both are going to stop blood flow pretty quickly. It's just <laughs> <laughs> different mechanisms. I was up in Montreal working with Cirque and uh, man, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop eating poutine. I even bought a poutine t-shirt that I wear all the time now. So. We went from Johnny saying protein all the time to poutine all the like, time. I don't know what happened. Stuff, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean well, 20, I, 20 grams of poutine, Johnny? I taught the course and I was like, man, I had poutine last night. It was amazing. I didn't know where to go. And I was in a hurry and they were like, where'd you go? And I said, McDonald's. They were like, Jesus Christ, you ate it at McDonald's. That's not even good poutine. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, um, so I think what people are going to really be interested in from, from your perspective too, is, you know, you, you really understand the performance space quite a bit more um, as well as this, the IPC stuff. And so you guys had a paper that just came out in journal of applied physiology. I think it came out like a week or two ago um, on blood flow restriction training and high performance and the high performance athlete from science to application. Um, Danny Christensen, who's done a bunch of cool stuff as well um with with performance and, and how bfr might manipulate that so um one of one of the things that was really cool in there just maybe you want to give an overview what do you think bfr it, not ipc but bfr kind of fits from the strength kind of athlete to the endurance athlete and i know there's a blur of, of what those lines are yeah i mean I, I think it's an interesting space um and one of the things that we highlight in that paper is um uh, there, there is more evidence coming out actually looking at elite athletes, but a lot of uh, what we have uh, in the literature now is done with sort of your recreationally active participants. And mm -hmm. for anybody who works with elite athletes, um, you know that they're a tough group to study for a few reasons. One, because um, they're elite athletes, so you got to be very careful what you do. Um, we rarely, if ever, take muscle biopsies from, you know, the Olympians in town. Yeah, um, yeah. It's often just not worth it. Um, so that's one thing we've got to be aware of. And the other is that oftentimes when we see changes, whether we're talking about blood flow restriction or, or anything else in the training sphere, um, a lot of changes that might happen in less trained people are unlikely to happen in elite athletes because they, they may have manifested that change already just as a result of their years of training. So um, it's an interesting area to get into to think about, can we actually um, cause these changes in these athletes on top of what they're already doing? Uh, I guess the other side of that too, is, is it too much of a stress uh, to mm -hmm. add on to these athletes as well, uh, because that's usually the first thing you're going to cover with coaches when you get into this. It's like, okay, well, what, what's it going to do to them? And, um, how much is it going to throw off those things we already deem important? Um, so that was kind of the perspective we took going into this, um, and understanding where's the field going now. Um, we tried to explore a little bit into the mechanisms of what might be causing these changes at, at a muscular level, um, at a cardiovascular level. And to say, you know, is there a point in doing this? And I would say overall, we conclude that uh, there is pretty good evidence that suggests um, there is a, a real effect of these things. Um, a number of things that we can do will affect an elite athlete and, and perhaps is the, uh, the icing on the cake. It's not that we're going to replace all of their training with blood flow restriction, but there may be added benefit to that. Um, and we try to highlight some knowledge gaps as well. What do we need to understand a little bit more before we can um, conclusively say this is the thing we should be doing with, with these athletes? Yeah, I would encourage anyone. This is 
I would say the best overall review of BFR and its application from a performance perspective. I mean, you guys, it's well done. And if anyone's interested in this, I, I think this is going to be the go-to paper as of now, you know, and, and I think what our questions we get all the time is, is this something that should be done as an additive? Is this something that should be done to replace, like maybe periodizing it in season, you know, kind of taper them down and, you know, like these nagging injury type things. There's one paper, the Bjornsson one, um, Olympic lifters, you know, just adding a little bit of BFR to it just really made some interesting changes from that. So, so what do you think from that? Yeah, I mean, that Bjornsson paper, I think, is a great example of, I mean, these were, for those who are not familiar with it, they were very well-trained powerlifters. And uh, if I recall correctly, they added only two uh, separate one-week blocks mm -hmm. on top of their regular training. Um, and so that's pretty compelling evidence that this, this short little bout, like this high-intensity dose, if you will, um, only in the, the group that actually added the BFR, they saw these fairly substantial changes. So um, I think it does depend on the sport and the demands of the sport. So powerlifting is obviously uh, very different from marathon running, for example. Um, and how you're going to use that is probably dependent on what kind of changes you want to get at. Um, so whether we're talking team sports where it's repeated sprinting or you're talking something that's pure power or you're talking about something that's um, endurance-based, I think the way that we approach the restriction pressures and the, the doses, if you will, um, cycling through, uh, I think we have a lot more to understand to be honest, Yeah. but I think that it's very context dependent. So, um, it probably is something that's periodized, not used all the time. Um, right. like any other stress it's expected, our body will adapt to that. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, 10 sessions of BFR just added onto that strengthening block. I mean, everything. So fiber size, myonuclei content, um, you know, strength across the board. Um, and you, without it, they didn't see those changes. So that's what the team say, you know, like, okay, can we just kind of throw this in throughout the season? And the other question we get to, especially from this kind of like a powerlifter perspective, or they're doing a lot of heavy strength work is when would you throw that in? Is this like throw it in pre work, you know, I do my BFR, then I go do this, I do my session, and then I do BFR as kind of this like finisher, or I have the guys come back, you know, four or five hours later, and we throw a BFR session on. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think that's where we need to think very carefully about individualizing this to the athlete, um, because periodization will be done very differently. So let's say that we're using this um, to improve aerobic capacity, for example, there's, there's increasing evidence that we can actually make even quite fit athletes more fit. Mm -hmm. Um, so when we think about how do we want to use that, we probably want to be using that to get them ready for the next bout of training. Um, because ultimately you want to specialize as close as you can to, to what they're going to be doing in their competition as you get closer to that competition. So, um, in that case, that might be something we're using a few weeks out, maybe not right before. Um, if you go to, there's some really, really good data. There's, there's maybe about six studies now that show VO2 max for example, um, it improves. And, and one of the first ones that caught our attention was by Ferguson's group yep. in the UK. Um, and they used really well-trained cyclists and they showed an increase of about 5%, I believe it was in, in VO2 max. And these guys were starting in the mid sixties. And quite honestly, when, when it was first brought to my attention, I called shenanigans because I was like, <laughs> that, that, no, <laughs> like, right. Like what did you do to these guys where I think it was a four week study. So eight sessions and yep. they saw this big jump up and I went, that doesn't happen in people that that well-trained. Um, but to their credit, they did it again. And, and they did very strong science. They, they did a good job of explaining um, at the muscular level um, what kind of changes were happening or not happening. Um, but, but they can cause these changes in these athletes. And it's now been repeated um, with lower doses. So in that study, they started off using repeated wind gates and um, mm -hmm. like we like to call it marinating in between. So they'd get off the bike after going like stink and they'd trap blood in their legs and, and wait for two minutes and then repeat that. And other groups have now shown it with um, light load walking. We've seen it in rowers, um, relatively light rowing. And, and rowers are aerobic animals to begin with. And they saw right. a 10% increase. So those kind of things, um, again, that's where I go, okay, well, what, what kind of athlete are we talking about? What dictates um, really good performance? And how do we best use that? So in an aerobic athlete, I may be using that to specifically increase their fitness. Whereas in a team sport athlete, um, fitness is obviously still important, but it might not be the end goal. In, in their case, um, it might be to recover from a shift or, right. um, you know, a high intensity bout and then get ready for the next one. So where I would time that, how I would specifically put that in is certainly going to be context dependent. Yeah. These, these aerobic studies, when 
you know, they seem to just keep coming out always positive. You know, um, it's just, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm done with clinical BFR trials because they suck ass to do. I'm just going to do these aerobic trials because they, they seem positive. And so looking at that from, you know, obviously your, your cardiovascular experience, you know, what do you think mechanisms is? We talk a lot about, you know, reduction of stroke volume, maybe changes in mitochondrial kind of, you know, not, not density, but improved capacity. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a few things to consider there. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things that we see right now is that um, VO2 max does go up. So gold standard measure of, of aerobic fitness. Um, there's not a lot of evidence yet that shows performance is increased as well. Um, mm -hmm. There could be some explanations for that. Um, perhaps, perhaps what we're exposing these athletes to is actually a bit of an overtraining stimulus. Um, I don't want to give away too much about what we have going on right now, but um, <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> well, in COVID, we've uh, you can do it off air, Jamie. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, then, and then I'll then I'll present it at my next it's conference. Fine. Yeah. Like, hey, it, 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 pay no attention to the slides coming out of ORS for the next year. Yeah. <laughs> Just send us some graphs, right? Um, I will tell you, we, we're very interested in this, and um, we've tried a, a variation on this protocol of like sprinting, short sprints, and then occluding. Um, and one of the things that became very apparent to us, we thought we had a fairly light protocol and we did it for only two weeks and we were taking all sorts of measures on ourselves and uh, we were really beat up afterwards. And I point that out because um, another focus of my lab is overtraining. You know, what happens to the cardiovascular system and to performance um, when we intentionally beat the crap out of people for a few weeks? Uh, and this felt a lot like that. So um, when I look at, at some of those studies, I go, well, if you tested them right after you'd been you'd been training them this way, maybe they, they did see these big improvements, but it's kind of masked by the fact that they're just, they're depressed in their ability to actually put out that, that kind of uh, power performance. So we see VO2 go up. We don't see performance maybe with a little bit more of a taper and a rest um, that could go up, but it, that's a really important question to us to, um, to sort of get to the bottom of. Um, it seems like it would kind of point back to maybe that, that heart rate variability study y'all did and then maybe Nielsen's work where they showed that, you know, increase in strength over the next, what, what was it, 12 days or 10 days or something, 10 days. Yeah, there was, you know, maybe this recovery that was happening that allowed people to, to perform better. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the study that we did that you highlight there where we looked at heart rate variability, um, when we first started playing with uh, using ischemic preconditioning, and in adding an exercise component. So we're kind of blurring the lines between IPC and BFR. Uh, one of the things we all noticed was we felt kind of fuzzy afterwards. Yeah. And we were like, what is that? And, I was and wondering how y'all could even pull that study off, man. I mean, it sounds terrible. Yeah. yeah, we do a few things that don't make us very popular in the department when we go recruiting. Yeah. But um, for those who are not familiar, essentially what we did is we tracked heart rate variability um, to understand a little bit about sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. And the, the major finding out of that study was that um, it is a big training load, even though it doesn't take very long. Um, it's kind of like a hit protocol. In this case, we were just cycling with blood flow occlusion on at a pretty light, I think it was 50 or hundred Watts. Um, but we saw that even the next day, people were still kind of messed up. So mm -hmm. our conclusion from that is like, you've got to be careful. This is a big training stress, even if it doesn't seem like right. There's also some stuff that suggests, you know, just by changing blood flow patterns, we may be changing endothelial function, for example. So perfusion of the muscles may change. So even though we might be causing an effect away from the muscle, you know, maybe centrally we're causing VO2 to go up, uh, but we might be affecting the way that the muscles are able to um, take up and use oxygen, for example, or, or supply the tissue. What do you think also, you know, you've done some work looking at the, you know, the, the, the free radicals and, and potential antioxidant type work. I know Danny Christensen, who's on this paper with you, you know, that's something that they, with their glucose study, that maybe it was this increase in antioxidant or glucose or whatever. What do you think in general BFR does with that? Takes it down. You got more of a kind of buffering and that might be beneficial. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting area. I mean, I know I don't have to tell you guys, but one of the, the frustrations with this area is we, we as scientists, we don't really understand how BFR works yet. Um, there's a lot of good theories about what might be happening. And one of those is that it's driven by a reactive oxygen species. Um, so in, in the study you mentioned, we paired up with uh, Graham Holloway's lab, another researcher here at Guelph. Um, and he does much more um, tissue level molecular work than I do. But we... Um, 
what we did in that case is we had people come into the lab and we did a muscle biopsy to just get a baseline on them. Then we had them actually do a hard BFR set and we took more biopsies after. Um, and so two hours after we were able to, to look at the tissue and understand what's going on um, at the mitochondrial respiration level and uh, what's going on with ROS production. Long story short, we actually showed that um, from the mitochondria point of view, ROS, it actually goes down. And I, maybe that now when we look back, we go, well, that's probably not surprising that if you need oxygen for these reactive oxygen species and you limit oxygen, it went down. And in that study, we also compared um, experimentally changing oxygen levels in a respirometer uh, to see what happens when we take it away from the human body um, using human tissue still. And, and sure enough, that seems to be the case. So um, mitochondrial respiration, mitochondrial ROS is maybe not the be all end all, but it does give us some insight about, you know, is that likely a driving factor? And, and perhaps it's not. Right. And I, and I think we're also interested in our clinical side, these oxidative stressed out individuals, you know, your, your obese, your diabetics and things like that. Is this an intervention where maybe we are limiting their free radical load and, and you know, they've all got this just terrible endothelial kind of function. Um, so this, this is, is, and we had a Parkinson study trial that we were working with at, at Baylor down here and, and they showed that as well, you know, they, they really improved endothelial function in these oxidatively stressed out individuals. So I think, I think that's fascinating work we're going to have to see more and more of. Yeah. And I think it's really neat too, when we, when we think about how do we apply this moving forward, I mean, there's one thing to talk about sort of our, our normal or pseudo normal participants, because anyone that wants to do this is pseudo normal at best, but um, <laughs> But then when you take that to whether it's clinical populations or athletes, I mean, they're really at different ends of the spectrum. Um, and so to give you an example of how we often think about this with things like inflammation, um, it, it's, it's common that people say, like, you know, if you have obesity uh, and diabetes, you, you're probably walking around with chronic low grade inflammation. And we know that that's generally bad. Mm -hmm. um, and people, it's tempting to take that to athletes and say like, well, inflammation, bad, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so there's some pretty compelling work now that shows yeah, sure. An athlete gets inflamed after a good hard workout, but that was kind of the point because right. if we knock down that inflammation, then they actually don't adapt. Right. And so, you know, our thinking on like ice baths and, you know, high dose, even vitamin E and vitamin C will cause the same effect. So I think we need to keep that in mind when we think about blood flow restriction and um, how would we use it for health improvements or performance in, in sort of getting through everyday life versus how do we use that with an elite athlete? Because their buffering capacities and all that are gonna be very, very different. Totally different, yeah. Okay, so we've got, if we are looking at from a strength perspective, it looks like throwing additional BFR uh, might be something that an athlete could benefit from on top of their training load. Um, we, you know, I think you guys mentioned in your paper as well, um, Per Argard's recent systematic review and meta-analysis that, hey, BFR did just as well as, as lifting heavy when they kind of took the better papers, um, didn't have the double dipping effect and all of that. So maybe it could be something you swap out if need be. You're in a, you, a hockey team that's traveling a lot and they just want to do something a little bit lower load on their, on their guys when they're in a playoff or something. And then we've got the aerobic potential. And, you know, I, I guess the different flavors, we, we kind of just, because it's easy clinically, we just kind of, let's just do steady state. You know, we're going to kind of follow the Abe protocol or whatever. Um, but now, you know, we've got all these different protocols. It's either do it during intervals, do it during rest periods. Um, so there's different ways to skin the cap. What, what do you think, like looking at the aerobic one overall, would, if you're to say, like, I'm going to start working with, you know, some endurance athletes, would you look at an interval, a, a rest protocol, a steady state? Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think that's where we're going to see a lot of this work go is that, um, I mean, traditionally we have said, okay, well, we'll just choke off blood flow and then we're going to do something <laughs> and we're, you know, we're either going to walk on a treadmill or we're going to bike or we're going to lift weights. Um, I think there is um, pretty good evidence now that that's not always the best way to go about it. And this cycling is, is maybe, um, depending on your goals, a better way to approach it. So for example, if I want somebody to really get a good quality session in, let's say I'm doing the Wingate style, so 30 seconds all out. Um, if you've ever tried BFR, you know that you're not, you're not getting a good 30 seconds if you've got the yeah. cuffs on at the time. Um, yeah. But maybe we can get that high quality stimulus and then sort of amplify that stimulus by using it in the rest period. So I, I think that's where we have to get it sorted. I think in terms of understanding both the, um, the build and the decay, if you will, of these adaptations, there's a lot of work to be done. Like how much is enough and how much is too much on the front end? So we don't overtrain athletes, for example, if we're working with elites. And how long does that last? Um, 
is another really big thing. So when you say like, well, when would you use this? We have some ideas about what probably makes sense. And we can look to things like altitude training or other um, heat training is commonly done in endurance athletes. Um, and maybe that'll tell us a little bit about like how many weeks would we expect this would last for? Also the life of a, you know, a blood cell, for example. Um, but we really need to understand that so that we can put it in the best place at the right time. Right. Well, we'll be looking forward from your lab to direct us, <laughs> hopefully with some of that work you're doing right now. And then the other um, point you guys brought up in that paper and something that you're an expert at is, is IPC, or IPC, whatever you want to call it, ischemic preconditioning. Um, and so I, I think people who listen to this podcast know about it. We've talked about it enough. It, and, and I'll just put out, you've got a good YouTube that you did, almost like a Grand Rounds, I think, or something at, at, at Guelph, um, where you, you went into a lot of y'all's work and also some of the IPC stuff. So how would you describe IPC from what it does? I'll just say IPC is an application of a, of, of a tourniquet, inflation, deflation, usually three to five rounds, equal on and off times. It, it kind of came from the medical side of the house, looking at it with, with um, you know, can you spare organ tissue? So... What, how would you describe it from what you think is going on? Sure. Yeah. I, th I think that's a, a pretty good uh, explanation and, and absolutely credit to the medical field because um, sports scientists like ourselves, we totally stole the idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it really started from an understanding that um, in the heart, actually, damage could be reduced in myocardial infarction if they actually went in and, and cut off one of the coronary arteries. They'd use forceps and just cut it off. And they realized the mm -hmm. tissue below that didn't have the same kind of damage if they cycled through cutting it off and letting it go a few times, which is neat, but um, not very applicable to humans. Yeah. So um, the next step was they, they realized that if they cut off a coronary artery that was not specifically um, above the region that was about to be affected, and they could study that by causing MIs um, by just you know, basically choking off the artery. That's what they would do in a mouse model. Um, that works too. And so that led then to understanding that maybe we can do this completely remotely. So in, in the field, we talk about ischemic preconditioning. More accurately, it's always remote ischemic preconditioning because we're not actually affecting, um, we're often not affecting the, the area that we think um, is going to be affected. So in, in exercise, we, we really took this to say, okay, it seems that if you give a good enough dose of this ischemic preconditioning where you cut off flow, you let it go a few times, it's typically about five minutes of occlusion and then five minutes of reperfusion. You cycle that through maybe four times, four or five times, um, things seem to change afterwards. And if you give a, a good enough dose, almost every organ will be affected. And of course, skeletal muscle is an organ as well. So um, this was applied then to say, okay, well, if we do this before exercise, can we actually improve somebody's capacity to, to perform. Performance studies are, um, they're interesting. I mean, they're fun. We, we enjoy them in my lab. We, that's a big focus for us, but they're also very challenging to do because um, whatever intervention you might be doing um, likely has an effect that is a few percent of overall performance, but there are many other things, motivation, you know, just how you're feeling on the day, all those kind of things can change it as well. So um, it is a challenging area. And one of the other challenges when we first got into this was understanding, um, is it all in somebody's head? Because, you know, you, you do a, a fancy dance around them and tell them you're going to make them better. Placebo effect is real. Um, and one of the, the challenging things is when you squeeze somebody at 220 millimeters of mercury, they know that you're squeezing them. They know something's happening, right? <laughs> yeah. And when you just <laughs> say, Hey, I'm going to put this cuff on and not fill it up. It's pretty clear that, that you didn't. So, um, that, that's been something that I think has sort of plagued that area of research is in understanding, is this a real effect? And, and that's been a real focus for us in trying to pull that apart and say, is this a real effect? And are we actually making them faster? And if so, by how much? And you guys did a great study to kind of tackle that. Because I, I know we've seen the, the editorials, you know, the problems with the performance side, but your nocebo study um, where you did the sham ultrasounds and yeah, yeah I, I thought you were going right into that, Jamie. You, you made Johnny set you up there. Like you're trying to be humble. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like that was a, it was a great study. It really was, you know. And it also, I think as a physio, we all kind of saw ultrasound and people associated these positive things with ultrasound. And we all just yeah. kind of went, oh, God, here we go. We're going to go down this road again. But um, well, I appreciate you guys saying that. Um, in, in fairness, I, I can't really, or we can't really take full credit for that study. So, um, Credit where it's due to Sabino Carvalho and uh, their group. They actually did, they came up with the sham in the first place uh, where they were going to use the ultrasound. So 
um, we, we read their study, which was done on treadmills and, and we went oh, like, what a great design. But for us, when you're using a treadmill and it's motor driven, uh, that might affect mm -hmm. what's going on in performance. Mm -hmm. And really what I mean by that is compared to like a bike where it's, we just blind people and we don't let them see what's going on. It's just work as hard as you can. Um, and we get a, a real time output, right? We get Watts. Whereas when you have a motor driven treadmill, we were worried that it might just be that you just kept up because you didn't want to go flying off the back. So if you guys run on treadmills ever, I mean, I know maybe I'm just lazy, but it's like I set the speed. And it's kind of set and forget, right? I'll just keep up and not fall off. If I'm feeling great, I'm unlikely to bump it up. Or if I'm feeling, you know, a little bit slower, I'll probably just suck it up. So yeah. we went, okay, how do we maybe change that a little bit? So we kind of tweaked that study. But for those who are not familiar with what we did there, um, the idea with this was to get a sham that people might a not be able to figure out what it was and they might have preconceived notions about what they thought was going to happen and we let them kind of run with that so in the one group we did a scheme of preconditioning where they laid on the bed and we just as i described we filled up the cuffs and let them go a few times and then in the other group um, we had we had a, an ultrasound like a treatment ultrasound and essentially what we did is we turned it on and went beep beep beep, beep and then we turned it right back off because they couldn't see it and then we just rubbed ultrasound gel all over their leg for the exact same amount of time what I, what I think was um, neat about this study and, and really stuck with us is we also asked people, um, what did you think was going to happen? So when we compared the two arms of the study, um, it turns out, as we kind of expected, most people thought ultrasound should do something because there is this prevalent belief that, you know, it increases blood flow and that's going to be good. And I've seen this. Yeah. Right. So they all told us, oh, yeah, I'm going to go faster after you did that ultrasound thing to me. Um, and most people in our study did not understand what ischemic preconditioning was, nor did we really inform them. Um, and they actually believed it should make them worse. And I can see why people would believe that because, you know, we inflicted a little bit of discomfort on them before and they could figure out that we were cutting off blood flow and they went, that can't make me better. Um, cut to the chase, what eventually happened was it was actually the opposite. So they believed they should go faster with ultrasound um, and slower with ischemic preconditioning, but they actually went faster with ischemic preconditioning. So that can't be a placebo effect if you thought the opposite thing should happen. Um, yeah. So that was pretty compelling evidence. It's yeah. brilliant. And it's, yeah, that's called a nocebo design. We don't have enough of those. So I, I definitely love it. The other thing um, you guys are, you know, you all use Delphi systems up there. And so you're personalizing this, um, you know, in, in these IPC studies more. And, and I think that was always a fatal flaw. It was a lot of the IPC stuff. It was like, okay, we're going to clamp off 100% of the arterial flow in these animal models. And it showed despair. And then people would follow it up in human models and use a blood pressure cuff and just say, we're going to put 200 millimeters of mercury or 220 is what everyone used. And, and we know from, from LOPs that like my legs are yoked. So it's like 500 millimeters of mercury to make mine go off. But, but Kyle's pre, he's got prepubescent thighs you know so he, he's like 150 what, we actually call him young thighs so he doesn't yep. feel bad so if you're just picking a number one group, uh, it, and I, you pointed this out earlier it's dosing and, and i hate that when we look at some of these trials and and they don't treat the amount of hypoxia as a potential dose you know you wouldn't take you know 10,000 grams of ibuprofen and one group does 50,000 50,000 think it's equal so what are your thoughts on that yeah, absolutely agree. And I think from a BFR perspective, um, it's really come around to our thinking that like we can't just be using uh, the same pressure, knowing that different people will be affected in different ways. And, and when you're exercising under load, um, I think that absolutely is, is a thing to think about. Um, our group thinking about dosing for IPC, um, we believe we probably do want to cut off most of the flow because that's, that's probably the stimulus. But we also took that and said, okay, well, can we improve upon that stimulus? And that's kind of where we got to this idea of blending, if you will, BFR and IPC. And that's why I often say we work in blood flow manipulation because um, they're just different ways to accomplish similar goals. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, that really got us going down this path was um, we tried it with a, with a light stimulus to begin with. So we said, okay, what happens if we do nothing? There's our control. What happens if we do ischemic preconditioning the way it's typically done? So we're going to do this cycling and you're just sitting in a chair essentially while this is passively being done to you, I guess. Um, and then we said, okay, well, what happens if we add a light exercise stimulus? So our two extra groups that we added on, the first one was we cut off blood flow and we just electrically stimulated the muscles um, below that occlusion. And then the other one, we actually had to walk on the treadmill. Um, and what happened in that study was, um, 
as we normally see, there were responders and non-responders to this stimulus. And that's a, as I said, in performance studies, that's a real tough thing to understand. Did they really not respond or, you know, was it just a bad day or were they just outside of the variance of, uh, of human performance and how much we would expect, for example, Johnny to be different from Kyle to be different from me. Like, um, is it mathematical essentially? And then we had them do each of these studies and we showed that those who didn't respond to a, a traditional IPC, when we sort of upped the ante a little bit and added that extra stimulus, they started, there was less non-responders. And we see that in the response, non-response literature outside of BFR as well. So it might just be that a greater dose is required for some people to sort of flip the switch and maybe there's a threshold there. Yeah, and I, Stevens mentioned that he's he and I spoke together in DC at a conference, and you know it's kind of like okay, if you're going to hedge your bets, maybe do IPC and try and throw stem on or, or throw some sort of you know volitional contraction, and, and maybe you're you're catching responders and non-responders all in one group, and you know one group doesn't miss it. Yeah, and and so to your point uh, that you started with, I mean, it could be like it could be hypoxia. Maybe we have to drive tissue oxygenation down, and, and obviously when we start contracting the muscles, there's more of a, a draw there to pull mm -hmm. out um, the oxygen that exists. It could also be that you know maybe it's the other side. Maybe we need a certain level of metabolite buildup, even at rest. If if you're yeah. marinating, um, you know there will be some because the the venous effluent isn't leaving. So yeah, you're trapping it. Yeah. Exactly. So we don't know which side we're, we're emphasizing. We're, we're again, trying to pull those bits apart to figure out how we optimize that. But, um, and when you're looking at, um, when you're, you know, that was Josh's e-stem study as well, the non-weight bearing, you're, you're doing your stem at hundred percent LOP or full, uh, yes. much full occlusion. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a trend we've been doing more and more clinically is okay. If, if this is a lower stimulus, then we're going to start, it's okay. We're going to take these occlusion pressures maybe up all the way on some individuals. If they, you know, we have to taper up with clinical patients, but it's, yeah. I, I don't think it's bad to go that direction. Right. Yeah. I, I would say clinically, I, I've gotten some pretty legit in like early post-op people pain reduction responses, which yeah. is, that's a huge win. You know, I, and one specific ACL guy came in and barely putting weight on his limb, couldn't hardly move it. And all we got was two inflations on him um, with stem and he had a substantial pain reduction that lasted, it didn't, it didn't regress at all. It stayed, you know? And so that's just a huge win on, on our end from someone coming in. Not only do they think you have a clue about what you're doing on this limb, that's just killing them. But um, then you also see that their function is going to increase and in those, and they're just going to start progressing a bit better. So um, yeah, he's definitely been tinkering with that. So. The, uh, one of the, my favorite responder, non-responder papers is that elite swimming study with IPC where they shammed them and it was like no change at all. And then when they did the intervention, the IPC, it looked like a freaking shotgun on, on the, on, on their times. It was all over the place. Some were, you read the papers, like they were almost like would have meddled in the Olympics after you did this and other, a few others, they got worse. Um, so what are your thoughts on that study? Yeah, I mean, that kind of comes back to the the whole idea of like, how do we use this? And, and with the elite yeah. athlete, how do we use it? So um, that that paper was done. It was a Canadian study. Yeah, uh, Toronto. It was done in Toronto, um, where we had some pretty, pretty quick swimmers, as far as our Canadian swimmers go. We're all uh, living and training there. Um, so for those who are not familiar, yeah, that's what they did is they shammed them or that or they had them do this ischemic preconditioning. And then they said, OK, go swim your event. And if I recall, it was 100 or 200 meters. I 200 meters, I think. Yeah. And, and I mean, at that level, when you ask an athlete to do that thing that they do, um, they're, they're pretty good at doing it, right? So the, the variation is very small. It's like, go swim as fast as you can and, and go do it again. There's not a lot of room for improvement. Um, so yeah, in the sham, they came in with very little variation. And, and then they said, okay, now we're going to do this thing. And um, the improvements were, they were impressive. Um, so it, I, when I talk about that study, when I give a presentation, I often put up um, Michael Phelps and I say, hey, here's here's where other people would be in the pool over different years uh, when Phelps finished. And uh, you can see, I mean, swimming is won by very, very small margins. So the margin of change that you see from doing this IPC before uh, is a massive effect. Like when we're not even talking like podium or not podium, it's like you didn't even get into the final. Uh, like yeah. you're, you're not even in the conversation. You may not have made the Olympics. <laughs> so right. um we're talking the average change would be in a hundred meters. It would be a full body length, like, um, yeah. which is huge, right? Like you're, you're yeah. literally not even in the picture when they, they show the, the, the touch at the end. 
Um, and for those who were the biggest responders, it was three times that. Okay. So um, pretty cool stuff when, when you yeah. consider that. I mean, if we can cause a change in an athlete of one to 2% with anything that we do, including sort of our regular training, we're celebrating. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. Um, and some of these changes that we're seeing in these athletes are at the level um, that could be considered equivalent to doping, right? Like things that are banned. Um, so that, that's pretty, pretty compelling and exciting. Yeah. And we've been trying it with some of the teams and, and it ha it's been, you know, user beware. Let's try this in practice. Let's see, you know, pitcher, let's do this and then see, you know, did, did it change velocity or anything like that? And, and just seeing it, if you, cause it would be almost a crime to hold an athlete back that responded like that. <laughs> They're going to be like, yeah, let's, let's see if this works for me. If, if I was a pro guy, I would be like, I'm going to try this out and just see what it does. I, I, what I think was a really cool too on that study was they're like, well, let's also throw in, is this a humoral response? And then drew, drew the blood and then showed that the preconditioned blood actually spared the, uh, I think it was pigs, the pig hearts from damage. So what, do you, what are your thoughts of like, because we get that a lot in baseball, you know, the pitchers sometimes don't like things on their arms. So could they, could they put this on their leg? It's, it's a humoral type thing and, and avoid having to, to go with the actual arm. Yeah, so um, that was a really cool part of that study um, and something we've been interested in for quite a while um, where they, they use what's called the Langendorf model. So essentially you take the heart out of an animal and you string it up on a stick and you can keep it alive for a certain amount of time. Um, and it's a good way to model. Um, yeah. We just got so many unfollowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's not how we do how we do work at Guelph. Um, but, but it is a well-accepted model for, um, for damage of the heart. And so basically how, how long can you keep it alive? And I'll be honest, we, we tried this um, because we were quite curious about this as well. And um, it was really hard for us to do because our model is a little bit different. We're not just concerned about preventing damage. We, I wanted to do it more like a, like a Valvoline, you know, those where they put the car on the dynamometer and they just rev it till the engine explodes. That's <laughs> the model I wanted to have. And, and we couldn't quite recreate that. So we've actually returned to the drawing board and, and now we're trying it with, um, in a mouse model using skeletal muscle. So we'll be taking out their soleus um, and we're actually gonna treat human blood different ways. So like I described before, we'll do control where we just take human blood and we spin it down and then we bathe the muscle in that. And then we're gonna shock the muscle and see what kind of performance we can get out of it. And then we're gonna treat the blood successively. So then we'll do a normal IPC or we'll do an IPC with exercise and we'll bathe all these different muscles and see like, did it change performance? And what we think is really, um, novel and hopefully insightful about that is we've re removed the nervous system completely um, because it's no longer attached. Right. Um, yeah. you now there are challenges when you go across species like that, um, but that will give us a good insight of like, is there something changing in the blood? And we, we have reason to believe that there probably is both from this mm -hmm. study and some of our own um, almost happy mistakes. If you'll, if you'll accept that as, you know, we tried things and we went, Oh geez, like it has seemed like we saw this effect in a different limb that we weren't trying to play with why did that happen? You know, maybe it's because we've changed circulating factors in the body. So at this point in time, would you be comfortable just say, I'm going to just do it on a unilateral thigh to, to get this sort of whole effect, or I need it bilateral, or if you're going to be arm dominant, let's go arm. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, if we look at the IPC um, literature, people have tried this before where they said like, is it the amount of muscle mass you're doing or the location? So like, if you want to be a better cyclist, does it matter if you do it on the arms, you have to do it on the legs. If you do one or you do all four, uh, the short answer is it doesn't seem to matter <laughs> yeah, we can't yeah. quite see that effect. Um, but it, I don't think it's one thing happening in isolation either. So it is very possible that there's a neural effect and there's a humoral effect, you know, something mm -hmm. circulating. Um, Kyle had mentioned earlier too, that, you know, pain seems to be affected as well. Um, this is another area we, we haven't actually published this paper, but we're going to get it in really soon. It's written um, where we, we did this with IPC as well, where we said to people like, are we just changing how you feel about exercise? Like we did something that's uncomfortable and it lasts about a half hour. Did we just change like the suck level for you, if you will? Like, did you just kind of settle into, I'm okay with it. You know, this hard exercise isn't so bad anymore. I just went through real discomfort. Give it to me. Um, yeah. And we, we also followed it up with um, tests that were not exercised. So we said, if you were somebody that responds to ischemic preconditioning, do you just change the way you respond to pain? So we did a cold presser test where you stick their hand in a bucket of ice. I mean, it's, it's not the worst pain in the world, um, but it's a well-accepted test that your body kind of freaks out. You know, blood pressure goes up, for example. And so then we said, okay, well, does that change the way you felt about that and the way your body responded to that? Um, so 
we would agree that there seems to be something there. So cool. So not well. not a vat of mercury like Alum and Smirk did like way back in 1937. <laughs> they didn't do the. You didn't get that past the IRB, JB. Yeah, you had to go with the cold RB water, RB. man. Uh, unfair, but yeah, they don't let us do those things anymore. <laughs> we Canadian IRBs, know, Canadian IRBs, they care <laughs> about their ah, subjects. Come on. <laughs> so from a performance side, you know, this is, this is good and it's easy to do. Um, you can either just apply it and you know, pre pre event or apply it and maybe have some sort of added dose to it. Like we're going to add stem to it or a little bit of exercise with it. Do you lastly, before we move on, do you feel like there's a timing? Um, you know, we, we know there's this window and this second window to it. Would you do this 30 minutes before your event, five minutes before your event hours before it? Yeah. Um, another great question, a really applied question, um, and something that we've um, we've attempted to dig into as well. Um, I think this happens in most fields of research where, and we see this in BFR, I'm sure you can relate to this, like the 30-15-15 protocol. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people use it because it was one of the first ones done and there, there was good success with that. So why change what works? Um, and if we look at IPC, we have the same sort of thing where it's like we treat people, we wait a certain amount of time, it tends to be about like 15 minutes, let's call it, and then we do the exercise. So our group looked at that and said, is that the right amount of time? Um, if we look at the, the cardiac literature where all this started, it appears there's two distinct windows of protection from a heart attack. So you get sort of the immediate effect and then you get this later window that kind of like goes away and then it comes back like a day later. So um, that was intriguing to us because you might look a little bit weird if you show up at the starting block and you've got blood yeah. flow cuffs on, right? Yeah, Everyone's laying down. Yeah, what's up, bro? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we went, well, can we do this the night before in the hotel room, for example? And does that second window appear at the right time? Or maybe even better than that, can we stack these things? So if there's two windows, what if we get them to line up? So it's like the first window helps you so much and, and you can put that on top of when the second window is going to happen, you get twice the effect. So we tried that um, where we essentially, we treated people and then we tested or we treated and then we waited and then we treated again and then we tested or we treated and waited and treated and you get the idea. Yeah. And we, we kept going. Long story short, it didn't seem to matter. Um, we did not see any, any addition of this effect. It was sort of you responded or you didn't respond. Right. Um, Which makes it easier. It takes the complication out of it. Cause I, yeah. you know, I, I know some Steven stuff too is should we do chronic you know, IPCs to, to somehow try and help performance. But that, that is a little bit more of a burden if you have to do two weeks worth of IPC just to train up for this event. So just get it on and go. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like, okay, yeah. cool. Um, and then the other thing from an IPC perspective, which we probably use a lot more kind of uh, right now is, is looking at it from a recovery. Can you put it on post bad events and see, and you guys touched on this in your paper as well. What are your thoughts on that of, of, of blocking muscle damage potentially or, or increasing performance? Yeah, um, th this is, I, I think a lot of people have had interest in this because theoretically it makes a lot of sense that this should probably work. Um, In-house, we, we did play with this. We never ended up publishing uh, these results. That was one of the first studies we actually ever did where we took people um, and had them run downhill. Um, which is something we use for, for other work as well to cause muscle damage. And if you've never had the pleasure of running downhill, um, it's, it's a neat experience. It, it feels like you're not working that hard, except for your legs. You feel like Bambi by the time you're done. You can always tell people uh, who are in our experiments because they're avoiding stairs for the next while. Um, <laughs> we, we actually found that we, we couldn't change that much in, in terms of uh, what happened afterwards. Um, Again, maybe we didn't have our protocol right at the time and maybe it just didn't work out. There is some evidence that, that contradicts that and people do think that there is some benefit to that. Um, but if you look at like CK as a measure of muscle damage and stuff, um, I guess my take would be that it's, it's actually much like regular exercise. So um, we know that there's a repeated bout effect as in you go to the gym, you do something too hard, your body, you take a beating the first time, but for the next six weeks or so, you're pretty well protected from that. So mm. I think we could be using BFR to, to help with that because it's a, it's a stress like anything else. And we can kind of prepare the body to get ready for that. We do see the same kind of CK responses. Um, if we take somebody who's uninitiated exercise and we do BFR, just like if we took, put them in the gym and did eccentrics, um, we can cause some damage for sure. Um, and it, they should repair to that, but they will get better over time. So whether you're using it before or after, I, I think um, basic principles seem to apply. Bit of a wash. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I guess moving on, unless you guys have anything else you want to add on the IPC or IPC kind of front or performance side? 
No, I'm good. Cool. Then I want to point out you took on this huge task with with Stephen as well as I, I believe Dr. Warmington was with you guys of running the frontiers and physiology kind of special topics for all things BFR. So so kudos to you guys for for doing that. Um, and and I, I just pulled it up. You guys had a, a kind of a review of it. You had 21 articles come out. Um, and what's awesome about it, uh, and, and also 127 authors overall, it was all done for Frontiers of Physiology. So this is all open access. You can get to those papers, which is what's great. It's, it's a high tier journal. And so that's just a, a ton of information that we were able to kind of cram into one thing. We, we also kind of wrapped it up and we did our... We, I can't call it a position stand anymore, whatever we're calling it now, the core Gundam. Um, and, and we kind of got everyone from our, you know, different parts of the world to come together and say, okay, now what do we think is kind of best practices here? And then like all things, there was a spinoff where some of our colleagues over there in Europe came and said, well, you guys got the muscle damage piece wrong. Um, so I kind of want to get into that without throwing people under the bus or whatever. We're all friends with everyone that was involved with that. But your thoughts, you know, and people can go and read those editorials. They put their editorial and then we came back and put an editorial out. My, you know, in our email streams, I, I said, from a clinical side, we don't really give a rat's ass. This is, this is not an issue with us at all. We don't care. We're seeing enough from BFR. But what do you think of BFR and muscle damage? And if you want to get into those editorials at all. Sure. Um, first of all, I'll say credit to Stephen and Stu for organizing. Um, I was lucky enough to kind of tag along and be a part of that. But I think that was a really important contribution um, because, we really needed to, you know, get all the, these minds together and say, like, where are we at, and what do we need to do to do better? And and I think we've seen real acceleration in the field. Um, and, and this won't be the final answer by any means. And, and I think we all know that. I mean, you guys contributed this as well, so it, it's a good starting point, and it'll be neat to see uh, where we move from that. I'll also say, like, I don't love the controversy that, that sometimes comes with science. I guess if you're you now rocking the boat, people aren't going to be upset with you, but. Um, yeah. I, I think it is healthy debate to talk about these things. And and we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that um, safety of blood flow restriction and, and anytime we're doing blood flow manipulation is, is something we should be thinking about. And I know we've all had those concerns. I'm now at the point where I feel pretty good about most things uh, in terms of, you know, our original thoughts were, are we going to have blood clots when we do this? I mean, are you causing blood stasis and, and are we putting people at risk? Um, there's now pretty compelling evidence that that's not that big a deal. I'd say the two big things that we're still debating as a field a little bit more now um, are, you know, what kind of damage are we causing or could we be causing, um, which I'll circle back to. And, and also, what's the blood pressure response here? Um, yeah. You know, the metabol reflex. Are we building up these metabolites and, and is that being sensed by three and four afferents and, and having a total freak out, essentially? Yeah. So let's start with the damage. Um, as I alluded to, I don't think there's any, in my mind, there's no debate that absolutely you can cause a lot of muscle damage. And um, the groups that, that raised some issue with that, they've done a really good job in that field. And they're muscle physiologists. That's, that's their world. Um, right. So full credit where it's due there. Um, I, I guess where we differ in our interpretation is how much it matters and, and how surprised we are when we see some of those things happen. So CK is commonly used as a measure of muscle damage. It shouldn't be released into the blood unless something happened to those cells and, and it was released from them. Um, I guess where we differ is, you know, we do work in things like ultra marathon. So we know that people who go and run for really long periods of time, like they, they really break down muscles. They cause a lot of inflammation. CK goes through the roof. Um, and so to us, we go like, well, this is not an abnormal response. If you work really hard to something you don't normally do, like people don't run a lot of ultra marathons, even if that's their sport, you just can't. Um, there's an expected change, but typically knock on wood, people don't die as a result of that. Um, not that I'm saying death is the only endpoint that matters, but you know, we're not having um, kidney failure in these kind of things. Yeah. So in a lot of these studies, they did a great job of showing proof of concept that yes, if you take an unaccommodated person and, and hit them with a sledgehammer, you can cause a lot of, um, a lot of muscular damage for lack of a better term. Um, now, does that necessarily mean that they had rhabdomyolysis? We would argue, no, right. um, this might be a normal response. And and perhaps you shouldn't be taking people who are not accommodated and ready to take on that kind of an exercise load and hitting them with that. Because in this case, a lot of them were, they weren't working out to begin with. So right. I would argue that if um, you wouldn't be a good personal trainer, if you took somebody and just smash them with eccentrics either, you should probably know better. And I think that's the message that needs to come out of this is that yes, you could 
essentially prescribed this incorrectly and hurt somebody as a result, the chances of doing that if you have um, proper training should be quite low. Right. And I, I think obviously we all agreed. Um, the hanging your hat on CK is, is just not a, not a place to go with this. And you know, my background is with the military. If we were checking CK on all these guys, once they got done with their events, every one of them, they'd be freaking out on that. There's potential, you know, of, of there could be some rhabdo event and that there is these hard signs you got to really look for. And I think on the clinical side, this is something that, you know, maybe we have a better appreciation for just in terms of the things that you see and can measure too often do not tell you the whole picture. You know, when I, when I talk about the military story in the background, Johnny, you know, we have the one slide of the guy's limb that's basically been blown off and then they do the limb salvage procedure and it comes back. And, and, and the easy analogy there for us on the clinical side is, well, we have this picture and it tells us a whole lot, you know, and it tells us that this guy looks so much better, but it doesn't tell you anything about the amount of pain that person's in about their functional limitations. And I think on the clinical side, we see that all the time where a patient comes into the clinic and we have all of this imaging and workup, you know, and it's like, Oh my God, I have this horrible disc bulge in my back. But the person's like, yeah, I'm a two out of 10 pain. You know, I, I kind of just want to get back to doing the stuff that I was doing and not hurting quite as bad as I do when I get active, you know? And, and, and so this picture just doesn't quite add up. And I, and I feel like that's really kind of what we're seeing with the CK. So I think like on the clinical side, it makes more sense um, when you kind of, construct it that way for, for people to understand it. And I, I wonder if on the muscle fizz side, maybe there's maybe I, I don't want to say a lack of context, but it, at some level, it maybe kind of seems that way to me from the outside looking in, if you will. Yeah, I would probably agree with you. Um, careful how I, how I state that. Um, because I think there's a difference between saying um, something's a possibility and something is uh, of a magnitude that we really need to be concerned. And, and maybe I'll, I'll use the same example for, for the arguments we see with the metabolic reflex. Um, no doubt when we stop venous return and, and we're building up these metabolites, the metabolic reflex is going to go up. I mean, we have models in cardiovascular physiology, like the, the PICO model, where it's typically done with hand grip, right? You do hand gripping, that's your exercise. And then we cut off blood flow and we let it build up to see how the body responds to that. Like that's the point. So we know that's a thing and we can actually measure sympathetic uh, outputs. We can tap right into that and yep, it goes up. Um, but I look at that and say, okay, yes, I agree with you that if we're using this type of thing, let's say with an older patient, could they have a metabolic reflex? Yes, they probably will. And for full disclosure, um, to sort of prove this point, we are collecting data on this right now. So, um, we showed that when we compare I'm really light load exercise, I've been on this metabolic reflex thing recently. And I'm like, I just don't know if. I'm that worried about it. So I'm great. That's great to hear. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm no, just, that's cool. Yeah. So we showed like with light exercise, yeah, we get a, a certain blood pressure response and we can measure this beat to beat in our lab um, with, with some fancy gear. And then we say, okay, what if we do it? And then we keep blood flow restriction on during, during the rest periods as we would. And sure enough, blood pressure is higher. And I'm, we're not surprised by that. Um, but it's higher by a magnitude that we kind of go like, yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and I think when you put that in context of like, what does blood pressure hit when you actually so we were doing leg exercise, like hack squats. But if you get under a heavy bar and you squat and you go back to the work of McDougall um, in the 80s, I mean, we're talking hundreds of millimeters of mercury. Yes. So, so if it goes up, like even if it went up 50 millimeters, which is probably twice the effect that we're seeing, and I kind of go, yeah, but who cares, right? <laughs> Some point, um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. We did a systematic review analysis of BFR in the, in the, with folks in, in the heart you know, the heart trials and, and hypertensives and really saw a non-significant rise. I mean, it was just really, again, it was like, okay, who cares? Looks like it's pretty good. So it'd be good to see your work follow up. On that. And I feel like with the vast majority of the studies that have looked at hemodynamic responses to BFR, the magnitude of the increases that you see in the BFR group at no point really reach a threshold for cessation of exercise by any kind of standard that's out there, whether it be APTA, whether it be the AMA, ACSM, you know, I don't feel like anybody's really reached that magnitude. So like, kind of like you were saying, it's like, well, does it matter that much? It's got to matter, but how much does it matter? Right. I think it's very context dependent. And and so, I mean, the proof is in the pudding sometimes. I do think there's still value in understanding um, what's actually going on though. So like, can we reduce that risk further? Perhaps we can. 
Um, I mean, there's, you guys are probably aware there's some work that shows maybe there's a blunting of the metabolic reflex. So we actually get better. Like your body goes, Hey, we don't have to freak out about this. This is relatively normal because we do BFR training and, and we've seen this before. Um, that's something that I think we're, we're interested in. I, I'm also kind of interested in the idea of like, can we even create super high blood pressures when we remove some of the blood from circulation? When you just think about how a pump works, um, Right. Like what are we generating pressure against if we keep removing more and more blood and, and keeping it somewhere yeah. else? You're yeah. going to, if you do that study, you you know, you have to have like fancy names for these studies, Jamie. And that's, that's gotta be the vampire study. That has to be <laughs> a vampire study. Somehow you've got to construct it. That we'll way. call it twilight or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, oh God. <laughs> oh, then my daughters will get excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got to translate this to the layperson anyway. So maybe that's a good <laughs> Well, I will say just uh, to give you a bit of insight, I mean, we, we have the ability to look at um, with echocardiography, like what's going on with the heart. And sure enough, I mean, we see big changes in end diastolic volume and what's coming back in the interior vena cava. So like, it just makes sense, right? You remove flow. It's not coming back. The heart doesn't have the same to push out. So that's going to change things. Well, and, and that's a kind of, so we already have a heart failure trial that's just kicking off down at university of Miami. And, and that's their hypothesis is removing blood, from the heart actually helps the heart's potential to pump maybe. Um, and, and so you're just, you're, you're taking away some of this congestion around it. And, and so. Yeah, that's a really interesting model. Yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah. like the opposite of what we'd see in like swimming is not recommended for those people because it actually returns the flow. So, Hey, let's, it, yeah. The yeah, cool. let's take it out. Yeah. Cool. And, and so future directions for you guys are anything you want to tease are, are you, I, I thought you were looking at potentially like a diabetes trial. Are you, are you going down that road or. Yeah, this this whole uh, global pandemic thing has has wreaked a little bit of havoc on us and for others. Um, we have a lot of, uh, I think, pretty cool ideas. We're pretty excited about some things. Um, diabetes being one of them, as we mentioned, uh, with risk. I, I think we're in a neat place now, where uh, certainly our group and I, I'm sure others, we feel a little bit more confident about getting into some of those things that. I mean, from the beginning, I went, oh, diabetes is such a cool area, but yeah. um, these people could have potentially be at a, a higher risk to begin with, right? Chances of clots or underlying vascular disease. Now, I think we feel pretty good about, um, at least with pre-diabetics, like let's wade into that a little. Um, yeah. Our thinking there is that uh, we can essentially increase the size of the sponge, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. We know that the majority of blood glucose uptake is at skeletal muscle, um, insulin stimulated at least. And so um, if exercise makes insulin sensitivity better, well, what if we kind of use this, this passive model where we cut off blood flow and then let it go, but we also shock the muscle at the same time through stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, so we think we can in increase perfusion and, and possibly take up more blood glucose. So um, using things like continuous glucose monitors, which um, are a pretty cool advancement in tech. Um, nice. We've got some ideas about how we can maybe combine these things to help people who are struggling with that. I have, awesome. I have a study idea that I've been wanting somebody to do. I'm just throwing it out there so you could do it or anybody that listens could do it. In, in your spare time, Jamie. Yeah, yeah, in your spare time. You're not doing, you're not doing anything. Right? Let's be honest. And this does not have anything to do with barbecue, by the way. I haven't worked barbecue in at all today, and I just want some credit for that, Johnny. Um, but I, I really think it would be fascinating to just have subjects come in, do IPC or some kind of a sham, and then literally just have them wear like a, a monitor that counts their steps and just see, do they self-select to just get up and move around more? Cause I, I, I think that could be an interesting entry point as well to trying to introduce these people that are generally unaccustomed to exercise may actually hate exercise. And can we grade their introduction to getting to the point where, okay, now can you just pedal the bike for five minutes? And I just want you to get a little tired. You know what I mean? Like, because in the end, when it gets to like, how do I actually manage this person? I got to know where to start. And if just starting in a place gets this person up and moving around more and feeling like a little bit better, that's a win. That's a huge win for us in the clinic. So a hundred percent. And I think, I mean, that's a neat idea about looking at, um, at voluntary behavior. You can yeah. stop right there. It's a neat idea. That's yeah. all I needed to hear. Jake. Jesus Christ. Jamie. <laughs> I'll take it I'm one step that, I'm putting that on my Twitter handle, by the way. Uh, not one of Kyle's <laughs> ideas has idea. ever gone anywhere. So, yeah. I'll take it one step further, Kyle. I think what's interesting when we think about um, like type 2 diabetics, for example, I mean, it's a lifestyle-related condition. Um, and many people probably don't realize that 
one of the real challenges in getting um, those people exercising and that like going from nothing to something will cause the biggest health effect that we can um, because they tend to be fast twitch dominant, not because they're incredible jumpers, but because they don't move regularly. Um, that actually makes initiating exercise really hard, right? When you think about it, it's like everything you did like fatigued you, right? Mm -hmm. Because those fibers- It's a piece people don't consider at all, to be honest. That's with huge, you. In, yeah. in the rehab world, like our heads do not go there. And I, and I think that's, I mean, I think it goes, I think the same applies to like an ACL reconstruction and quad strength and that sort of thing too. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if we can make that exercise even just a little bit more manageable and enjoyable, like what a great first step. Yeah. And, and I mean, we've had our, the stuff that we do with blood flow restriction and electrical stim, it's been described as like exercise on the couch. And I get why people want to go there and I don't like to promote that, but maybe there is value to exercise on the couch, right? Like sit there, watch TV. Yeah. We're going to get you ready. So you can actually go do quote unquote real exercise. Like win-win. Hey, yeah, exactly. Huge. Yeah. Six minute abs, baby. Catch the fire. up with Dr. Hope. <laughs> well, awesome, man. Great having fun. you on. You guys are doing badass stuff. Um, it sounds like we're going to definitely need to get you on uh, almost like every month, as much as y'all are starting to churn yeah. out now. Um, you're making it hard for everyone else to keep up, dude. So love what you guys are doing up there. I appreciate the kind words. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to talk to you guys. And, uh, you know, maybe when we get the uh, the Twilight study, which was yeah. Uh, yeah. Kyle's great idea, we'll, uh, we'll put it out there together. Yeah. First round of Putin <laughs> is on me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk to you later, Jamie. Right, thanks, thanks, Jamie. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.